We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. I'm here with Kostya Kavyutsky, recently crowned International Master. Uh, thanks a lot for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me, Ben. I've been uh, reading your work for a while now, um, so I was happy to see that you just earned the International Master title. I know you've been working hard for it. Um, we will get to that. But first, I wanted, as I often do, now I can say often now that I've had three interviews, um, talk about where you came from, how you got into chess, uh, and uh, everything like that. Uh, sure, yeah. First off, I I do want to say thanks for having me on. I mean, I I did listen to your your first three podcasts, and I have to say, compared to um, your other guests like Greg, Jan, and, and Nazi, I mean, they they've accomplished a lot more in chess than I have. So I do feel a bit humbled uh, to be doing this already. Um, I started playing when I was uh, pretty young, around four and a half, and. I uh, I never really took it seriously um, when I was younger, but I was already playing in like 
national events um, when I was like 10, 11, 12 years old. And I was doing pretty well for my age group, um, but never figured it was something that I would do long term or especially not a career. It always was some kind of a strange hobby to me. This was in Los Angeles? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I grew up and and was raised in Los Angeles, uh, and we would travel a bit for like national scholastic tournaments. I remember going to like Arizona a lot, I think Kentucky once, Florida, kind of all over the country. And what was the mechanism that got you into tournaments? Uh, did your parents teach you, or did you learn at school? I learned from uh, my grandfather. And um, from there, I, I took an interest. My brother was also playing, who's um, two years older than me. And um, my dad used to play uh, back in the Soviet Union. Um, my family's uh, all from Ukraine, by the way. And um, we started getting like some random like group lessons kind of all over Los Angeles. Um, I remember I was working with uh, a bunch of different coaches. I didn't have one specific coach when I was younger, but I would go to a lot of like group lessons. Um, one is uh, Coach Jay Stallings, who I don't know if you know, but runs a, a really amazing program out near uh, Santa Barbara, I think, in California. Um and I remember going to his lessons a lot, going to other lessons. And from there, we started playing in like local scholastic tournaments. Um, and we did okay, I think. I don't really remember, but I remember winning a trophy like almost every weekend or every two weekends or so. Um, so eventually, we started competing like more uh, national events. Okay. And did you stick with it throughout your childhood? Kind of. Uh, not really. When I was around... 12 or 13, I already kind of started losing interest. Um, so I was still playing in tournaments every once in a while, but really wasn't taking it seriously. Um, and then when I was 13, I also entered college very early through um, the early entrance program. So I was going to uh, Cal State University of Los Angeles, uh, enrolled in the school as a full-time student. And then chess really took a backseat as uh, just something that I kind of used to do or just this random hobby. And I was just kind of focusing on school. Um, and then I got back into it around when I was uh, about 15. Okay. We'll come, we'll come back to that, but I, I have to yeah. say a couple of things. I did. I came across something that said you went to college when you were 13 in your research. And it's funny to me that you downplay your, your accomplishments because you, you went to college <laughs> when you were 13. You got, you got an MBA when you're 21. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. And you wrote a chess book already somehow. Um, so <laughs> so the, the 500 pages, too, I might add. Um, I, it was long. Yeah. I, I, try, <laughs> I try to prepare for these interviews, but I was unable to read your 550-page uh, your chess book in time for this. So, so I apologize. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> but it actually it, it looks really good. I'm, I'm going to read it because it's right up my alley. But, um, and I, well, oh, we'll talk about this more later, but uh, the, based on what I saw. And your video, uh, I agree with what you say about opening approach, but we'll get back to that. I just wanted to throw that in uh, in terms of your downplaying your accomplishments. But let's talk now about uh, you're getting back into chess when you're 15. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't think it was such a huge accomplishment. It was just this like this program that exists in uh, in in the Cal State um, University and. It, it wasn't designed for like super geniuses or anything like that. It's more for kids who are just 
kind of mature enough and didn't need to spend um, four years in high school. Um, so we, we took a few extra classes to kind of make up for the subjects we missed. And if you're like kind of psychologically ready to go to college and, and deal with, with that environment, then that's what, what it was for. Um, and I'm really happy I did that. How do they judge whether or not you're um, mature enough? Or is that just um, your own determination? In the program they do, um, before you're enrolled, they they give you a summer of classes since we were on the, the quarter system. So you take two classes over the summer. In the meantime, they give you like interviews and there's also like this, um, this lounge. It was a big program. So you go and you hang out and there's about 150 kids. And the, um, the people in charge of the program, they kind of interview a little bit, see what your motivation is, what you want to achieve, and kind of uh, sorts itself out that way. Wow. And are you mixed in with uh, 18-year-old college kids, or are you in your own section with the other uh, youngsters? I think the, um, the first year or so, you were just taking like uh, the general education courses, and they try to put you in with all of the... The kids that enroll with you. So there was about 30 kids in my year. After that, everyone chooses their major. So we started taking courses with um, like regular age school kids. And uh, okay, so let's get back to the chess. So at 15, you're huh. are you on a four year track in college, or do you do you do that more quickly as well? It's actually a bit longer because we had some extra classes to take. So most kids they take about five years. Okay. Um, and they encouraged us to like take the summers off and pursue. Uh, other activities so for me that that would have been chess um so yeah when i was uh, i think i was 15 um and my rating was about i don't remember but it was between like 1800 2000 so i've been progressing but but really not much um the uh there was news that uh bobby fisher had died um and i remember it was as you can imagine a very big deal uh, across the chess world um and then I started like reading about him and his story and, and what he accomplished and his route to the world championship and, and all that stuff. And then I became like fascinated with uh, chess culture and chess history. So until that point, I had no idea that there was such a rich history. Uh, like I'd heard about some world champions and stuff. I had heard that Fisher was this amazing player, but I'd really had no idea to, uh, to what extent and, and how important chess was um, way back then. So that kind of, like inspired me to to pursue it again so were there any books that you read that stand out um or was it mostly just sort of internet research back then it was like internet research i think i probably read a, a chess base obituary or something and then started reading more about him um i think the first real chess book i read was probably uh fisher's 60 memorable games which i really liked um and from there i started getting into like more serious chess books. Well, I would say that one's fairly serious, but you're saying that was a springboard for other serious chess books? Yeah, I mean, that one was just like, okay, I wanted to know more about him and about his chess. wasn't necessarily to um, like improve my play, although I'm sure I learned a lot from the book. Okay, so to be, you said about 18, 1900 at the age of 15... And mm -hmm. and make so we're nine years later and you you just got the international master title that's that's pretty impressive. Um, what did uh how frequently did you start to study once your interest was rekindled? Um, I started studying um a lot maybe 
maybe two hours a day, maybe more on the weekend. Not exactly sure, but I had been working with um, Grandmaster Varakobian. At that point, it had already been a few years that I was taking lessons from him. Um, but it, I still wasn't very serious. It was just like a thing to do. Like you take guitar lessons and tennis lessons and then also chess lessons or whatever. Um, and then I really started to take the lessons a lot more seriously. Um, and I started actually like reading books and training on my own, working on my calculation. Um, and then I hit 2200, I think maybe a year later, I think I was 16. Um, and that was a result of just working a bit more and also just taking the game more seriously when I was playing, like really trying hard at the board and like not being intimidated by high rated players and trying not to miss chances and, and that kind of thing. Okay. And meanwhile, you're still going to school. Uh, so you graduated uh, five, after five years, so you would have been 18. Um, mm -hmm. And then what did you do after you graduated? So after I graduated, um, I spent about, I think, a year uh, teaching chess. So I was working for a couple of uh, like school programs and, and teaching chess and uh, like after school programs in Los Angeles. Um, and then I was also kind of just working on my own chess at the time, um, trying to like find strong tournaments and playing those. Um, and then I, at a certain point I got involved with, um, Metropolitan Chess, which was a company in Los Angeles that, um, originally our goal was to start running a series of, um, IM and GM norm tournaments because they're really weren't very many in California. Um, and eventually we expanded to be a publishing company and to run regular tournaments. And, um, and now we're even doing uh, scholastic programs as well. Great. And how do you enjoy teaching chess? Back then I didn't like it at all, to be honest. Um, it was just something I was doing, uh, for money. Um, and after about a year, I actually just quit because, it was um, kind of draining all my energy to work with like really young kids who, of course, didn't appreciate chess like like most chess players do. And it's, to me, it just felt more of like a babysitting job than actually teaching. Um, so I quit because I felt like it was really getting in the way of my own progress when it came to chess. But recently, about, I'd say, a year ago, maybe a year and a half, I started getting back into teaching and I've kind of found a love for it because I think uh, teaching chess well, I think, <laughs> is really rewarding. Um, and I've even gotten back to school programs and, and I think I found a way to um, work in schools and, and still deal with very young children, but actually enjoy what I'm doing just through like, a, I think, a change in, in mindset, I think. Is there anything you do concretely differently in terms of your approach or is it all just based on, as you said, the, your mindset going in? I think the the frame is kind of the most important thing. So to me, when you're teaching in after school programs, um, the first thing you have to realize is like, you know, these kids are not, um, they didn't sign up for some serious chess school. They're, they just want to have fun. You know, they, they just had a whole day of school. Um, so the way I look at it is that you're really just teaching them how to think critically and how to think logically. 
And you're using the game of chess as like an example. So we always focus on teaching, um, of course, patterns, but also how to think about the game and how to identify different patterns. And to me, it's really just about like a mental toughness kind of class rather than um, a specific chess class. Uh, so I think that really helped a lot because then I'm not too concerned that like, oh, they're not becoming, you know, amazing chess players, but they are still gaining a lot just from learning how to think critically about the game and learn from their mistakes and and all the sportsmanship stuff, which I think is just as important. I think that's um, you hit on something really important in there. I think, and I think it's it's good advice for any chess teachers listening. As you know, as you know, I think I I also teach chess, and it's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a challenge. Exactly what you say is a challenge. You have to find the balance between wanting kids to improve um, and also uh, wanting them to. In- Enjoy it, but I sometimes feel like when you try to teach them chess history, it pushes them away rather than draws them in a lot of the time. I don't know if you've had sometimes, that experience. Well, I I feel like kids they love hearing about um, specific players. I don't know that for some reason the the story of the game, at least in my experience, is always um, what they're more interested in. They want to know like who was white, who was black, were they a good player? Um, and, and all that kind of stuff. Sometimes I'll, I'll show some of my own games in class and they always want to know, like, if my opponent was sweating or if, <laughs> if they were, like, unhappy with the game or, or, like, all the, uh, the tidbits, I guess. That makes sense. Kids do love a good story. So let's move forward. So you're still, um, you played, so 18, you teach for a couple years. Now you've gotten back into it, but I know from, uh, reading you and, um, watching your materials online, that you've sort of been producing content online sort of all along. Um, mm-hmm. So how did that come about? Um, how did you get interested in writing and producing videos uh, and all of the things that you do um, online to help people improve at chess? Um, yeah, so I don't exactly remember the um, chronology of everything that I've done, but um, I started working with chess.com um, because we were running the IM norm tournaments with Metropolitan Chess, and one of the events we wanted to do uh, commentary, so we worked with Chess.com to set that up, and um, I was one of the commentators. And of course, I did terrible. It was my first time, um, but I, I think it was uh, I am. David Pruis, who he and, and Danny Wrench were like kind of leading the content team at that point. Um, I think he said something like I had like potential for commentary. And then um, I started doing some videos for chess.com, writing some articles for them. Um, and that's kind of how I got into working with them. Um, also, at some point, I got involved with the, um, uh, of course, you know, about the U.S. Chess League. Yes, the, the um, Pro Chess League. Now it's the Pro Chess League, of course. So back then, I, I remember starting a blog, and um, I would just kind of recap uh, all the week's action, and it was just kind of a fun thing I was doing where I would write like what I thought was the game of the week, what I thought was the most exciting match, the best move, all this stuff. Um, and then kind of out of nowhere, uh, Jen Shahadi emailed me, 
and said, do you want to do these recaps for uh, U.S. chess? Um, or at the time, it was uh, Chess Life Online. Um, and that's how I got into writing for U.S. chess. Um, so I started doing the recaps for the U.S. chess league. Then I moved on to like doing tournament recaps. Like if I travel to a tournament in Las Vegas, for example, I would then also write a, a recap of the event. Um, and then eventually, once I started getting some of my own success, I started writing about that for, for U.S. chess as well. And I, as I said, I really enjoyed your videos. And I wouldn't, you know, if I didn't like your videos or I didn't like your writing, I I just wouldn't say anything about it. But I, I'm not. Oh, just, sure. <laughs> I'm not. Uh, I'm not just saying that just because you're a guest. I, your videos on chess.com are very clear. You're a very good communicator. Um, they're well presented and on top of that, I also noticed you're a good writer. So I was curious if uh, how you developed your writing skills or if it's just something that comes fairly naturally to you. It's a little crazy because I honestly have never, ever considered myself um, a good writer. Like I didn't uh, read a whole lot of books as a kid. I was never interested in reading anything outside of like Harry Potter. Um, so I feel like I never developed my vocabulary. I never studied writing. Um, but somehow, um, a lot of people, they come up to me in tournaments and they say like, oh, I really like your writing and I keep getting writing gigs and all this stuff. Um, but I don't, I truly don't consider myself a good writer. Every time I send in an article, I, I feel like this is the one that people are just going to gloss over and, and not like. <laughs> um, I think my one advantage, I guess, is that I'm very willing to, uh, to be open in my writing, so I try to communicate a lot of the uh, the emotion that I'm experiencing during a, an event, um, and, and hopefully I think people can relate to that because I think a lot of chess players, by and large, are pretty similar in terms of like the emotions they experience. Yeah, and I think that uh, people, your readers, are going to be at different levels in terms of chess ability. So they may or may not be able to follow the calculations. They may or may not. Uh, have mm -hmm. th have the time to get out of board and really follow along in a game, but when mm -hmm. you when you talk about the emotional swings of a tournament or um, your development in chess, that's something that anyone who spent any time pursuing the game can relate to. So I I do think that it's um, a strong feature of your writing. Yeah, I think um, I think that's one of the interesting things about the chess world is that everyone like. Once they reach a certain level of like I don't know, a thousand like a very even a very low class player, it's they know what it's like to to make a dumb blunder. They know what it's like to make a brilliancy. Now, what that means to them is very different to like in a, an elite grandmaster, of course. Uh, but I think yeah, the feeling there, the emotion there is exactly the same for both players, which which I think is really cool. Yeah. So let's let's move forward in time. I think our only remaining stop before we can start. <laughs> talking about your your life right now, um, which I'm eager to talk about. But how did you end up getting an MBA already? I was um, still in Los Angeles and um, a bit at a loss of like what to do because I had already decided I wanted to have a career in chess, but I wasn't sure exactly how to achieve that. Um, mainly because I was like I don't know, 19 years old and. Only 22, 2300. I mean, really nothing special. You know, there's no way I could be, um, like a, a top level player. I'm just too old at this point to, to really get to that level. 
Um, and then I was playing a tournament in St. Louis, um, the Spice Cup Open, which is a um, really strong event organized by um, Susan Polgar and Paul Trung and their organization. Um, it's one of those super Swisses where it's like you have to be at least 2,000 feet to get in, maybe 2,100. And it's close to like 50 or 60 players. So it's just a really strong event. Excellent for a uh, norm opportunity. Um, so while I was there, um, my, my coach, uh, Akobian introduced me to this guy who ran the Lindenwood University, uh, chess program. And Lindenwood University, um, well, they, they basically, recruited me to to join for the next uh the next year um because they wanted to establish a really strong chess team they wanted to compete with um webster university which as you know is incredibly strong in the other schools uh, in in dallas and baltimore and so on so they already had a pretty strong team um, but they were just looking for more players i wasn't doing anything particularly great in los angeles i wanted to um I also wanted to just move out of the city because I grew up there and I was kind of bored of it. And so here is an opportunity to move to Missouri, um, get an MBA, which wasn't the most important thing to me, but I figured that wouldn't hurt um, in case chess did fall through. That would be a a nice thing to fall back on. Um, And it was only, uh, I think, like 15 months, the entire program, so... Even if it didn't work out, it wasn't such a huge time commitment. And that could be closer to St. Louis, which at this point is doing um, truly amazing things for chess. Like they've already run a couple of U.S. championships at this point, and they're starting to run um, these high-level events. Like I don't think they had already done the Sinkfield Cup yet, but I think that was maybe a year or two after I got to St. Louis. So it was just a good opportunity kind of fit at that point, um, and I went for it. Dan, did this cost you any money, or were you able to utilize your your chess cred to um, get not have to pay tuition? So I did get a chess scholarship from Lindenwood, but um, in addition to the scholarship, I also had to um, work on campus and like the uh, the the student store, the the spirit shop, as they called it. Um, so I got a full tuition scholarship based on that and then i had to pay for an apartment outside of campus which was really cheap because this was out in st charles so the the rent was um compared to california new york i mean the rent was pretty amazing and not bad at all and did you have any chess income at this point or not at that moment uh yeah i continued to like do maybe a few online lessons but most of my income came from either uh, chess.com or random um, articles um, and then I think I I think I just had a bunch of like random chess jobs that I did for just a little bit of income but it didn't take much to, to live off there okay and this was about three years ago is that right um, yeah I started at the beginning of 2013 so I guess it would be four years now almost. okay and when you finished up did you go straight back to LA Yeah, so I graduated in like spring of 2014. Uh, I moved back to Los Angeles and um, I continued to work for Metropolitan Chess and I took a larger role um, as uh, director of marketing. Um, And we continued to 
expand on our uh, publishing business. Um, at this point, I was also working on uh, my chess book pretty seriously. Um, actually, this is a project that started, I think, in the middle of 2012, and we only completed it in uh, towards the end of 2015. Wow, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we were working on enough. Um, so, of course, this was a this is a big opening book on the um, the Open Sicilian. So it's a complete repertoire for white. So as you saw, it's um, quite a ton of work. And uh, my writing partner was uh, I am Johnny Bekamanov, who had moved to Los Angeles uh, a few years earlier and had been helping us with the uh, I am Norm tournaments. Um, so he was a big expert in the Open Sicilian. He'd been playing it all his life. I didn't know anything, but um, I did. Uh, I guess I could say I was kind of like the writing guy. <laughs> so we worked through a lot of the lines. We just did a ton of research, you know, in chess space and reading uh, books on the Sicilian, watching some DVDs. Um, we then chose the repertoire. We figured out our opening philosophy, like how we want to present the book and all that stuff. Um, and then we kind of just worked on it slowly. So it took a while. And then in 2015, we redid a lot of it just because the theory had updated in a lot of the lines. So that part took less, but less time, but it was still um, a hefty amount of work. Was that a f- source of frustration that you had to do that or expected? Um, it was frustrating at first, but then I was like, well, you know, I, I want to write a good chess book. So if this is what it takes, then, you know, let's do it. <laughs> okay. And can you, um, you mentioned your opening philosophy and you've written about it and spoken about it in your videos, but for listeners who haven't heard it, do you, do you mind talking about it a little bit? Oh, sure. Yeah. I don't think it's anything groundbreaking. I'm sure this is something I've either um, stole or, you know, kind of molded from um, grandmasters that, you know, kind of other philosophies that made sense to me. But basically, you know, I think when you're playing the opening, your main goal is to reach a middle game, not necessarily where you have some kind of objective advantage, but where you're just familiar with the ideas and the common plans and the position. I think that's really what's most important for players. Um, all the way up to the elite levels, um, I think it was probably Anand. I, I've heard a lot of his interviews. When he talks about like opening preparation, he rarely talks about like um, computer evaluations or anything like that, but rather he says, like, oh, this is a middle game where I'm familiar with the ideas and themes and... Even if I don't remember all the lines, he'll say, like, I can still work out the details just by knowing the uh, the thematic ideas. Um, for example, you probably remember his um, his brilliancy against Aronian in uh, in Konze a few years ago in the Semislav. I, I don't, I'm ashamed to say, but but go on. <laughs> no worries. So he he played this this brilliancy, I, I think maybe 2014 or 2015 against Aronian. It was just like... Um, really remarkable game and a lot of it was opening preparation as he revealed but it wasn't necessarily preparation he he memorized but he still had to work it out at the board so he's talking about how important it was to really understand the opening and and the common uh the common middle game themes it also helps to be anand (laughs) oh (laughs) not a minor matter when it comes to figuring out what to do in the position even even knowing the idea has but 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 your point is well taken overall anyway um continue 
Sure. Yeah. No. I mean, of course, he's he's a brilliant calculator. Um, and then in this other speech he gave, I remember a point that really stuck with me, where he said, um, "When it comes to the opening, you know, you'd rather." Um, I'm definitely paraphrasing here, but he said, "You'd rather be confident and delusional than know the truth about the position and be skeptical, like about your chances." So he was basically saying. Um, you'd rather get a position where perhaps someone told you like, okay, you have a big initiative here. Um, even if you don't know for sure, because at the board, you'll be a lot more confident and you'll play a lot better versus knowing whatever the computer valuation is and knowing that objectively you have no advantage. And then at the board, you're like demoralized, basically. It's like the placebo effect. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That makes sense. And, and I think, for players of lower levels, uh, especially around 1,600, 1,800, 2,000, I think the advantage is for players who truly understand the middle game. Um, And that's why so many players, in my opinion, um, they love the Sicilian Dragon so much or they love the King's Indian is because even if they don't know all the theory in the opening, they can get a middle game and they're familiar with all the themes because these are such like bright attacking themes that um, they can still play the middle game at a very high level. And I think that's what players should be searching for. Yeah. Also, they should be searching. If you're not going to be a professional, you want chess to be fun. So you you should play things that, that bring joy into your life. Yeah. And, and to touch on that, it's like um, once a player reaches a grandmaster level, at that point, they start thinking about, okay, how do I really equalize with black and, and hold the draw? I have to be very solid and play the Berlin or the Petrov and all this stuff. But anyone below that level, I don't think <laughs> they should be copying like these uh, super GM openings because the goal, again, should not be just to equalize, just to get some equal position, but to get a position where, again, you understand what you're trying to do um, and you understand how you're going to get counterplay and, and all the, the common ideas and stuff. So with that whole philosophy in mind, that's how we chose um, – a lot of our repertoire on the Sicilian because a lot of the lines we chose wouldn't be considered like the, um, the, the sharpest, most theoretical lines, but every line we chose, um, came with, uh, a bunch of instructive games that we analyze and, and show like, okay, these are the ideas. This is what white is playing for. This is like the common breaks and tactics you have to watch out for. And I don't know. I think we were successful. Great. And, uh, I'm guessing as a chess book, this didn't end up being a wildly profitable venture for you. Oh, no, I, I hesitate to even count the uh, the number of hours I spent versus how much I received for it. Um, but I, I think it helped me in a lot of intangible ways. I mean, for one, um, definitely met people who didn't know my name un- until they read the book. Um, and as far as my own chess goes, I mean, I learned a ton about not only the Sicilian, but about middle games and, and strategies in general, just from um, studying, you know, all the games. I mean, I looked at countless of GM-level Sicilian games to to research the book, and I think that was extremely beneficial for my own chess. Makes sense. Do, do you think you'll write another chess book in the future? I have some random ideas, <laughs> but I'm also a little bit skeptical. To me, I feel like chess books are slowly going out of fashion because now like chess.com and chess 24 are so wildly popular that there's 
there's a lot of ways to learn chess without um, specifically using chess books. But I am very happy that many great books are still being produced uh, even this year. Yeah, and even the opening trainers, like to be able to quiz yourself on your phone is just an amazing breakthrough in technology compared to the way that I, <laughs> that I had to learn openings. Right, right, absolutely. Okay, so let's move forward to your recent pursuit for um, the international master title. Um, you've been writing about it in Chess Life, so uh, those mm-hmm. are, those of us in the U.S., I think a lot of people will be familiar with the story. Uh, those overseas may not, but you've been very vocal about how badly you want the international master title and beyond that, the grandmaster title, and it's... It's as you mentioned earlier. It's refreshing to read just sort of, you know, it's the hero's journey in action to to read you going through these trials and tribulations, and now you finally uh, won the title. So, what what led to that success? How have you been spending your time leading up to this? How have you continued to improve um, at chess? Um, yeah, it's funny you you call it a hero's journey because it has felt like a very like spiritual process. Um, you know, going through like the highs and lows and it, it has very much felt like a journey. Um, I guess I started chasing the title back in, I don't know, a few years after I started taking chess really seriously. So maybe 2010, 2011, uh, I started to believe that, um, maybe I could get to IM and, and even GM. Um, so I started playing in a lot of norm tournaments and I tried to, just get a lot of experience playing against um, strong players. Um, I think my first like breakthrough came, um, I want to say it was 2011, maybe it was 2010, but um, I played the uh, big open tournament in, in Reno that they, they hold every year, and, and I had a really nice performance. I beat... Um, uh, Enrico Sevillano, who at the time was an IM, but considered by many to be GM level, and now of course he is a Grandmaster. Uh, and then in the next round, I beat Grandmaster um, Alex Ivanov. And then in the final round, I, I drew another GM, and I ended up just having a really amazing performance. And then I felt like you know it was possible for me to actually play at a high level. Um, at that point, I also wrote a nice article for, for U.S. Chess about the breakthrough and what I did to study um, and improve. And, yeah, over the years, it's it's been a constant um, – it's been a constant struggle because, uh, you know, I've – when I have the time, I, I do try to train very hard. And I'd be happy to go into the, the specific, like, training techniques, I guess, if, if you want. But um, a lot of, for me at least, uh, the improvement in chess, it's uh, there's a lot of ups and downs because um, you know you can you can have very very bad tournaments where you you really just don't understand uh, what happened or why you're off form, and then when you have good tournaments, of course you you feel on top of the world, um, and I, I think what people underestimate a lot of times in chess is. Um, the importance of, of like mental strength. Um, and I know you, you and Ozzy talked about this a little bit in, in the previous, uh, episode. Um, and to kind of add to that, I, I feel like every player has, uh, a kind of range in chess on any given day. They can play either 
think on average like 200 points below their level and 200 points above. Um, and I think for some players that range is a lot greater, and for others it's it's a lot tighter. They're much more solid and consistent. Um, like if you look at the very top level, and you take a player like Ivanchuk, this is someone who, at this point, everyone knows he can play like a total genius in in one tournament and completely collapse in the next tournament. Um, whereas if you take someone, um, I don't know exactly who, but okay, in recent times, like Geary, you know, has like very, very consistent performance. Yeah, Kramnik. Uh, and I think it, or Kramnik, although Kramnik, I'd say, has really step, stepped it up a notch in his like latest years, just playing very, very sharp and, and interesting chess. Um, so what I think a lot of players should work on is is trying to do their best to put themselves in um in good form uh, mentally before a tournament and a lot of that is um specifically i think your expectations for the tournament um how you deal with losses i think is is really important i'm definitely someone who who takes losses pretty badly like i'll get really depressed and um i'll just kind of uh just live in like self pity for a little while. Um, and it's important to figure out like what works for you so that you can, you can get back on the horse and, and try again and, and not lose faith. Um, so I was, I was working a lot and I was training a lot and my first norm came in 2014, uh, at the, uh, that year's version of, of the spice cup open. Um, and, that was a very solid tournament for me. And at that point I already felt like I was good enough to at least get an I am performance, even if I didn't truly believe I was like, I am strength yet. Um, and obviously getting the norm gave me a lot of confidence to start working again quite a bit and training and hoping to, um, to of course achieve the title. Uh, and I didn't have a coach at the time because I just felt like, there's so many great chess books out there and there's so many things I could do that I, I didn't really need a coach to tell me like, okay, you need to <laughs> read a lot of chess books and work on your calculation and work on your openings all the time. It was, it was pretty obvious to me what I needed to do. Uh, so I kept working and um, I missed a couple norm chances here and there. And what really kept me going was that ultimately, you know, I, I knew and, and I still know that my ultimate goal is to become a grandmaster. So if I miss an IM norm in some tournament, it's it's bad and, and it should be upsetting, but it's um it's a very small step in, in the larger picture, I guess. You know, my, my ultimate ambitions are, are much higher than, than just getting a, an IM norm or the IM title. Um so I think that really helped me with not taking a bad performance um too much too hard and just going back to training and just continuing the journey. Um, so then my second norm came um, at the end of 2015, North American Open in Las Vegas. And I felt like I, I played really well there. Um, especially my, my resilience in that tournament was good because uh, if I had won in round eight against a really strong young player, uh, Nicholas Cheka, I would have clinched the norm outright. And 
I had black and we played this sharp game and I achieved a completely winning end game, you know, something that like a lot of players would in at least in my level be able to win in a very straightforward fashion. In computer terms it was like minus three, minus four. Um and then I totally relaxed and allowed him some counterplay and he ended up drawing the game. Actually I was lucky to draw the game because I had to hold Rook and Knight versus Rook with like no time and five second delay for 50 moves. <laughs> so that was kind of, that was definitely a, a tough experience for so, me. Sounds fun. <laughs> you know, actually, to be honest, Rook and Knight versus Rook is um, much easier defense than Rook and Bishop versus Rook. Um, and I had already done it before in a tournament, so I wasn't too nervous at that point. Um, but what was more upsetting is that I, of course, I blew a winning position. Uh, and the next morning, I was expecting to get white, but I was paired black against another strong player, um, around 2400 level. And, and this time I had to draw to, to achieve the norm. Um, and so I, I just prepared a lot for that game and, and I kind of, um, half expected not to get it, half expected to make it. And, and I just kind of felt like, okay, well, whatever happens, you know, I'm still on this journey. This is still what I want. This isn't going to affect anything, uh, in the long run. So I managed to to draw that game. Actually, it was a lot easier than, than I expected. We drew after like 20 moves. because I equalized pretty easily, and then he offered a draw. Um, so then I had two norms, and at this point I was already planning a trip to to Europe with uh, with my uh, roommate uh, and uh, good chess player Tom Riccardi, who's um, a uh, national master. Actually, Ben, you're you're in Pittsburgh, right? Yeah, I heard. yeah, that's correct. Yeah, he's so he he just recently moved there as well uh, to attend dental school. <laughs> ah, I'll I'll keep an eye out for him. Uh, the name rings a bell, but you know the, you know the way the chess world works. Every name rings a bell a little bit. So um, sure, absolutely, yeah. Um, oh, so one thing we didn't really mention is that I, I moved up to the Bay Area, um, just outside of San Francisco in the South Bay. Uh, in uh, spring 2015. And um, it's kind of a funny story. So Tom and I were in the same um, age group growing up. So we played in all the same national events and in the same level. Like uh, I remember actually seeing his name in, in like the uh, second grade championships, third grade championships, fourth grade, and all this stuff. Um, and I, I believe we played once, but I... I can't confirm that 100 percent so that means you didn't um, win right <laughs> <laughs> no the honestly my i have a memory of playing and and upsetting him because I, I believe he was higher rated at the time but then i tried to find the game in like the uscf database and i couldn't do it so i don't know <laughs> and um also i should say actually uh caruana is also in our age group so i remember seeing caruana's name um, at the the top of our standings back when we were really young, um, but Tom and I never spoke. We never really met, and then we randomly saw each other at this uh, blitz tournament at the Mechanics Chess Club, and uh, we were even paired and we we played. And then um, he reached out to me a few months later because he was kind of on a gap here. He wanted to pursue chess. We started studying chess together. Um, and then we started planning a, a trip to Europe to play a bunch of tournaments at the beginning of uh, 2016. <laughs> There's a lot of like 
random timelines I just realized uh, in my in my chess life. <laughs> well, we're almost caught up, so let's uh let's um you can't stop now. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to hear about the Europe trip, so keep going. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so the Europe trip started with uh the Gibraltar Open, which is um famous for being an incredibly strong open. And since I had just gotten my second norm in Vegas, of course, I was shooting for my uh, third norm. And leading up to the trip, we had been living together, so we started working on chess um, a lot, almost every day, basically. In our apartment, we had a, a chess board set up 24-7. We would, like, set up endgame studies for each other. I mean, we were really working on chess a lot. So my confidence was very, very high going into the trip. Uh, and Gibraltar, I... I did quite well, and it's a 10-round tournament. In round nine, I uh, had a chance to get a norm. All I needed was a, a draw uh, with Black against um, a... I, I believe she's now a grandmaster from China, but at the time, I think she only had the WGM title um, and was rated about 2,500 FIDE, so clearly grandmaster level. Uh, this was uh, Tan Zhang Yi. I'm probably mispronouncing her name, but... I got a pretty decent endgame and felt like um, I could only play for two results, either a win or a draw. And I totally, totally relaxed. She started improving her position and then ended up losing the game pretty tragically. Um, in the next round, I, I could still gain the norm with a win, but I had to beat a, another Grandmaster and it was just not happening with White after such a, such a disappointing result. So I didn't get the norm there, and um, over the next three tournaments, I never had such a concrete norm chance, but I would do okay and then kind of mess up towards uh, the second half of the tournament. Um, we also played in uh, Capella Grand, which runs a big open tournament every year, uh, as well as uh, the Cannes Chess Festival, and um, we ended with the Reykjavik Open, which also... It was a very successful and, and big open tournament um, held annually. So it was kind of a it was a big disaster, I would say, the the Europe trip as far as chess goes. Um, Travel-wise, it was great. Like, I got to see uh, a bunch of Europe. We stopped in Belgium for a week because we had a break in between tournaments. Uh, I was really glad I traveled and got to see so much uh, of Europe. Um, but, of course, from a chess perspective, it was, it was pretty disappointing. Yeah, I'm sure. Not, I'm sure I'm not the only one to tell you that now is now is the time in your life for you to do things like that. I, I think it's great, uh, and to to have something productive to do in between and play chess, I think is even more commendable. Um, I was curious about the the finances of what you're doing because teaching chess, mm -hmm. especially for someone who's young and a good communicator like you, I think it's obviously um, totally viable as a career. But taking time to go and play. Um, definitely takes away from that. So I'm just curious um, how you're able to make it work. Is it a struggle or are you able to sort of seamlessly blend it into your, your schedule? Well, the great thing about making most of my money from teaching chess is that I can take breaks whenever I want to, uh, to go play. So, you know, I would never be able to do that if I had some kind of real job to, you know, you can take off maybe a week, but to take off, two months <laughs> to go on this crazy chess trip. Um, I think very few employers would, would allow that. So yeah, I saved up uh, a bit of money 
Um, I also started working for a company called Bay Area Chess. Um, and I started doing a lot of after school teaching for them, um, as well as teaching uh, some of their, their group classes that they hold at their club. And they also gave me um, some private students as well that I kind of um, was introduced to through through working with them. And this allowed me to save up a bit of money and, and just fund the whole trip. Um, it was pretty expensive. But for a two-month Europe trip, I mean, I think that's that's not bad. <laughs> like, definitely a pretty, pretty amazing experience. Yeah, definitely worthwhile. Um, are you – is this something you're going to – I know that you ultimately are hoping uh, to earn the Grandmaster title. So are you planning more, not actively planning, but do you think you'll take more trips like this in the future? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, earlier this year, I also went to uh, Europe for the um, Isle of Man International, and, which was held just in October. Um, and I definitely want to co- go back to Europe because there's um, – I mean, I, I saw so little of it. There, there's still so many great tournaments to play in, in so many places I could see. So I'm definitely just a, a huge fan of being able to travel and, and play chess. I think that's kind of the the best thing a chess player could be doing. Yeah, especially uh, <laughs> as I was saying, at your stage in life, it's I think it's something that you'll remember fondly for a long time. Um, so, oh, totally, yeah. So I got a tip that you're into improv comedy from Greg. Is that true? <laughs> <laughs> so that was back when I was um, 15 or 16 you know I was living in Los Angeles so I've always been a big fan of um, of Hollywood and and I remember I was watching a lot of like stand-up comedy growing up um, and then at one point randomly um, my friends and I were walking through the uh, Third Street Promenade out in Santa Monica we, we got pulled in to see this like random stand-up comedy show or it's like five bucks a ticket like very cheap and all of a sudden i got super interested uh to stand up and then i started talking with the uh the guys of the show i was already i mean i was kind of the the funny one among my friends so to speak i was very interested in doing comedy so they they invited me to try it i did a couple of stand-up shows um and then i got into improv uh which is really really big in los angeles now uh, through the um, the UCB theater, which is stands for the uh, the Upright Citizens Brigade. So they they started out in Chicago, then they built a big successful theater in New York, and then I think over ten years now um, they they built a theater in LA and started teaching improv. So that was a ton of fun. I mean, I've always liked uh, comedy, and I really like doing improv. I would. Um, perform at random like tiny little theaters across town i had a couple of improv troops and everything um and actually the the reason i stopped doing it was because it started conflicting uh with the chess um you know there's a bunch of improv festivals each year and then at a certain point i realized like i had to choose between going to an improv festival or going to a chess tournament because they would they would just conflict um, and then I, I kind of realized I had to uh, choose one or the other and, and pursue it full time. Uh, it was kind of a hard decision, actually, but eventually I went with chess and stopped doing comedy, mostly. Well, chess is definitely a smaller pond to swim in, I would say. You know, I, 
I wasn't sure where it would be um, easier to succeed. <laughs> At least chess, it felt more concrete, like where if you could work on it a lot, you, you should get some success. Whereas in comedy, it's it seems like you, you need a bit of luck in addition to a lot of talent and a, even more hard work. Um, but it was really, honestly, the community. I really like the, the chess community a lot more than the, uh, the stand-up community, to be honest. How are they different? I don't want to say anything disparaging, but to me, the, the chess community seemed a lot more um, inclusive. And also, I felt like the people I met were a lot more genuine. Um, there's definitely people I met in the comedy scene who are like, very, very typically like LA fake, as you could imagine, like very phony, always networking. And, and that bothered me that I thought I might have to <laughs> turn into one of those people one day if I really wanted to succeed. I mean, it was probably a very, very naive and, uh, you know, 16-year-old perspective of it all, but that's how I felt at the time. Do you think that the improv has helped your chess teaching? Um, I'd say definitely, yeah. Like, I remember um, we did a lot of work on, um, I guess, like, recalling information that that you've heard before. You know, a lot of times when, when people are doing an improv scene, they're not just like making funny stuff up, you know, 100% of the time, but they're drawing from their own experience and then using it in the scene. So I, I think that helps with teaching because it really helped like my memory and my recall actually as far as like, oh yeah, I, I saw this one game once or I, I heard this thing or this bit of advice that can be useful here. So it's it really um, it's a lot easier to think on my feet, especially when I'm giving a lecture. Um, and if I don't know exactly what I'm going to say, I, I think some players might get nervous if they don't have it fully prepared. But for me, um, I, I think I'm pretty comfortable when I don't have like a prepared lecture or topic. And do you try to be funny when you're um, teaching uh, the kids? With the kids? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I do try to, to keep it light and interesting. Um, I don't have any, uh, I guess, like specific bits or jokes that I do, but... There, there's always fun ways to, to banter and interact with the kids. But I'd say for most good teachers, that, that comes pretty naturally. Okay. So as we record this, you're getting ready to head to the North American Open. Um, what else do you have on the horizon for upcoming tournaments? I know, Gray, and you have the Pro Chess League starting soon. Yeah. So other than um, the Vegas tournament, which I assume will be, will be over by the time this comes out, um, yes, yes, I don't have... I don't have any tournaments planned at the moment. Um, I'll be playing the uh, the U.S. Amateur Team West um, it, with um, with Bay Area Chess. We're going to be making a lot of teams using our, our coaches and, and our students. Um, but yeah, the big thing is the Pro Chess League, which is just starting in the, the beginning of January. Um, I helped organize the team for San Jose, which is is really really strong team and we're using all of um all of BAC's uh Bay Area Chess all of uh their coaches and and students on the team so that's that's very exciting with with the exception of one um our top guy Mamedarov is not affiliated with the club but we had a direct connection to him that would be amazing if you were teaching um after school chess <laughs> somewhere <laughs> <laughs> No, but another grandmaster from Azerbaijan, um, Raf Mamedov, who's incredibly strong in his own right. I mean, well up in the 2600s. Um, he's done like 
some lectures and some classes for BAC in the past. So we asked him to join the team. He agreed. He reached out to Mamadarov and and uh, got him to sign on as well. Um, in addition to those two, um, BAC has Daniel Naroditsky, who's an incredibly strong player and recently started teaching um, some of the uh, the higher rated classes, uh, as well as Grandmaster uh, Christian Carilla, who's also a very, very good player living in the, the Bay Area. So where do you guys get the money to pay someone like Mohamed Yarov? Um, that actually, I don't know. I'm not involved in, in the finances uh, of the group. I'm very curious about that. I couldn't get an answer out of Greg on that one either, so I'm just going to keep keep plugging away. If I knew and could tell you, I would. Or if I knew and couldn't tell you, I would tell you that I can't tell you that. But I, I truly just don't know. I know we started some fundraising campaigns and we have gotten some donations so far, but I, I don't know exactly how much. Oh, yeah. I don't I don't care particularly how much money each player is making. I'm more curious about the, the mechanisms of where the money is coming from. Um, you, like like oh, like you like you my general goal is just for chess to be more popular so you know mm-hmm. when i when people are actually managing to get the money together to get elite players to compete for their teams i'm w- w- i'm curious who they went to and how they sold them and stuff like that well I, I i'll get someone know. on here eventually who can answer this so <laughs> right fair enough um okay well I can't think of any more questions. Um, I mean, I'm very eager to see how your career can continues to develop. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. you've, you've, I mean, I'm really impressed with what you've done in chess, but also just how you present yourself and how you're sort of, uh, shaping a career out of it. I think it's a really good example for obviously up and coming chess players, but even old men like me, uh, can, can learn a lot from your, your approach to teaching. Um, and uh, just how you handle your business. So con- congratulations on that. Oh, thanks a lot. I mean, I have to say I've, I've gotten a lot of help. Um, you know, number one, like support from my parents um, because they, at one point, they kind of accepted that I wanted to be a chess player and they, they started supporting me, um, not just financially, but also like emotionally. Um, and I, I feel like I've gotten a lot of breaks from people within the chess world. Like, uh, I remember Greg Shahadi invited me to uh, U.S. chess school um, when I was, like, 16 or 17 and, like, 2200. I remember just emailing him, and I was, like, very eager to join because I thought it would be really, really good for my chess. Um, so he definitely helped me out with doing that and, and inviting me to future schools as well. Um, and there's just been tons of people, I feel like, throughout my, my chess career that have, like, given me the nod or, or like, some kind of... Um, help me out with some gig or some connection or something. So believe me, I didn't do it uh, on my own. Well, no one accomplishes anything um, entirely on their own, but I'm sure that, that you deserve a bit of the credit yourself as well. <laughs> thanks. Appreciate that. Sure. Well, thanks for coming on. Um, I'd love to catch up sometime in the future. Um, I really enjoyed hearing your story and uh, wish you luck in Vegas. By the time people hear this, they'll be able to look to see how you did. So uh, <laughs> good luck. Rest yeah, I really hope it. I don't I don't tank it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll still uh we'll still hold you in high regard either way. Right. Well, yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, this was this was a lot of fun. Great. Anytime. Yeah. If I could, uh, if I could plug something. Oh yeah. Um, sorry. By all means. No, no worries. I, I'd love for people to to connect with me on Twitter, um, or on on chess.com. 
Um, my username across all platforms, I think, is pretty simple. It's just hello, Kostia. Um, so if you're on Twitter, please feel free to reach out. Also, buy his book. I, as I said, I haven't <laughs> read it yet, but clearly it's going to be great. Uh, sure, yeah. And if you're in the 1400 through 2400 range and interested in the Sicilian, please check it out. Uh, it's called Modernized, the Open Sicilian, and it's on Amazon. Okay. Well, and I'll, um, like I said, I look forward to checking it out myself. All right. Well, thanks again. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for listening to Perpetual Chess. To hear more episodes, give feedback, or suggest guests, go to perpetualchesspod.com. If you like the show, please help me out by telling your friends and giving me a high rating on iTunes. I'll be back next week with another episode of the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.